and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepherd. I'm a mastering engineer and I run the production advice website aimed at helping you get the best results recording, mixing and mastering your music. And as always, my co-host John Tidy is here. Uh, a pleasant change for me this week is that it's not dark. Um, I don't, it's only been three weeks since we recorded our last episode, but uh, that's been enough time for me. I'm looking out over a, a beautiful sunset because it's, I guess, something people may not realise listening to these shows is that we are, what, eight hours apart? Is that right? Yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah, so it's the middle of the afternoon for John, but it's it's getting late for me. So, yeah, it's just pleasant to <laughs> be able to see something. Well, in fact, to not have the blind down. Um, anyway, John, how are you? I'm pretty good. Hello, everyone. The title of this week's episode is Fear of Bass, and the idea for it comes originally from uh, an interview that I did with Joe Gilder um, in the Home Mastering Masterclass course. Uh, I think the week five video, I use his song Behold as the the example that I'm mastering um, and demonstrating the techniques with. And on that course, every week I interview the person who kind of <laughs> let me use their song as a guinea pig for whatever it is I'm demonstrating. And one of the things that Joe and I talked about was what he called his his fear of bass. And if you're not quite sure what that means, don't worry, because we're going to talk about it in a second. The thing that reminded me of that and made me think it might be a cool thing to do an episode about was a question from somebody else doing the Home Mastering Masterclass course, which is running at the moment. Um, they emailed in for the Q&A session to say, what was the answer? What's the solution to fear of bass? Um, and I actually didn't have time to uh, talk about that in the Q&A that week, but I thought it would be a cool thing to talk about on the podcast this week. So maybe you want to kick things off. I mean, what is it we mean when we talk about fear of bass? Why should anybody be afraid of bass? Well, there's a lot of problems that you can have uh, if you're inexperienced or if your equipment's not great and um, all that fear that you're putting too much or too little bass into your mixes and masters. Um, fear that is not going to translate. If you can hear the bass, it's probably too much. Or if it sounds big, then it's too much. Or it's maybe you're hearing distortion, all these kind, kinds of things. And uh, there are solutions, and we'll talk about that later. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the one that I hear most often is the concern that there's probably too much. Um, and I think a lot of that comes down to the monitoring environment that people have. Uh, I think also it's, it's the fact that people are aware that they might have a, a problem with their monitoring environment. Most people know that there is no perfect room. We did a whole episode on room acoustics. And we'll include a, a link to that in the show notes and the mastering show.com where we kind of talk about how you can improve the sound of the room that you're working with, but even a custom designed studio with, you know, bespoke acoustic treatment we'll never have a completely flat frequency response. We'll never sound exactly the same wherever you sit or whichever direction you're facing. Um, and I think people are aware of that and that there are potential problems with that. Um, so the concern is if you hear a big boomy bass note in your mix or your master, you know, is that the room or is that in the mix? Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that causes, that's, I think that's what Joe was talking about, this concern that things might be out of control and therefore he would be too cautious. And I think that's the main thing that we, we want to talk about. But also people, you know, you often hear people kind of talking about mud, <laughs> um, mm. you know, this, this kind of cluttered, thick, 
uh, quality in, especially in the low end of mixes, the low mids, which I guess is you, is kind of the upper bass region um, and further down. And and you know, kick drum and bass guitar fighting against each other instead of working together. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things, like you say. So uh, hopefully, in this episode, we're going to be able to offer some solutions to help people with that. I think the first thing I want to get out of the way, though, is that one solution is not to high-pass filter everything. That's a piece of advice that I hear over and over again, you know, especially out there on on YouTube. Uh, Have you come across that, John? Yeah, definitely. Um, You can definitely do that too much. There are reasons to use a high-pass filter, but um, I think something that people forget about is checking the phase after, because high-pass filters definitely affect your phase that's that's a good point um i mean i think i even before you get to that i would be the advice that i've seen is often well just high pass filter everything right and the the reasoning goes well if it's an acoustic guitar for example there's not going to be anything useful down low so you might as well filter it out mm-hmm. um and i mean th- there's a certain amount of truth in that but i would kind of turn that on its head and say well if there's nothing down there and it's not causing a problem what's the point in filtering it out because I think the thing that people kind of neglect is that unless you use a really sharp filter slope, you know, a really steep kind of 24 or 36 dBs per octave or something, uh, the, in order to get the filter at the right frequency so that you're cutting out enough of that really low stuff, it will have some kind of audible effect, even forgetting about the phase effects going quite a way up into the frequency range. So if you put a, I don't know, the crossover of a, of a low cut filter at maybe 50 hertz or something, it could easily be having an influence up at 100 hertz or even higher, um, and it may only be a slight reduction. But I think if you if you kind of follow the advice to do that to everything in the mix, I mean, the reason they say that is that if there's if there's nothing happening at those frequencies, then there can't be a problem with them in terms of building up or creating mud or kind of you know you hearing the wrong thing because of the the monitoring in your room or whatever. It's like if it's not there, it can't be causing you a problem. So you're saying that by filtering everything, you're creating the problem that you were trying to avoid. Not so much the problem you're trying to avoid, but you're creating a different problem, which is uh, just that you have no genuine... I mean, th- there's so much goodness in the low frequencies of so many instruments. I guess, for example, I mean, even an acoustic guitar, th- even if you're playing so that the, the, the fundamental frequencies of the notes is, is not that low down... Actually, there's the there's the kind of the deep percussive sound of the strumming. That's part of the sound. You can take some of that away. Uh, what else? I mean, vocals. You know, backing vocals. Say, if you have some people singing kind of sustained oohs and ahs in a chorus or whatever, there's probably not a heck of a lot going on really low down. But there's still some really juicy stuff in the the kind of the upper bass. Of those kind of things, and I think the the problem is that people will go too far with this suggestion that they should uh, low cut everything, and they just end up with. So the idea is you cut low cut everything except the thing that you want to be bassy. So for example, you kick and the bass, you keep the full frequency range, and then you low cut everything else. So there's nothing to interfere with those instruments in the mix. I mean, that's not necessarily bad advice, but the risk is that if you set all of those filters a little bit high up especially if maybe your monitoring or your room is meaning you're not hearing quite as much of what is good about those things before you filter them. Then you kind of have this, it's hard to describe it. It's kind of, it's almost like 
half of the mix is kind of all high and middly and jangly. And then there's this huge deep thing going on mm. elsewhere. You know, it doesn't gel. It doesn't... It's disconnected. It, exactly. It's like you have a set of speakers where the crossovers don't match perfectly or something. And there's almost like a hole in the frequency response. Um, or just mm-hmm. things don't sound as nice as they can do. Uh, you know, I mean, the, for me, the kind of classic sound of a low-cut filter is, is you know, a little speaker that doesn't have any genuine bass response. So high-pass filtering everything is not the solution. There are times, I mean, for example, when might you, you definitely would want to use a low-cut filter if uh, you have a singer who is tapping their foot next to the microphone and ca- causing, you know, a thudding sound to be picked up through the microphone stand every time, you know, if the floor has a little bit of give in it. Um, for example, or if you have an acoustic guitar where somebody is strumming it really hard and you just have this kind of big thudding thing that doesn't really add anything percussive and it's overwhelming everything else. Mm-hmm. Those kind of problems that you want to sort out would definitely call for a low-cut filter. Almost everything else, I would say a low shelf or a gentle parametric is a better way to go because you can temper the the issue that might be hearing of you know a bit too much going on in those frequencies. I think a high or a low-cut filter is a really aggressive bit of processing to, to put onto an audio signal. Um, and then, of course, you come into the other issue you mentioned, which was phase, where if you have some kind of, if there's some spill between different elements in a mix and you have low-cut filters at different frequencies causing the phases to change, you can that can cause all kinds of weird um, effects when you kind of try and blend those together in the mix as well. So Yeah, I often run into that with uh, two microphones on a kick drum, so mm-hmm. I I might want to favor one microphone for the like the the kick attack, and I don't want any low end in there. And then the other one I want just kind of like a deep low bass. And if I use filters to do that, often the phase relationship that they would have when they're flat is very different. Uh, so sometimes I have to invert the polarity opposite of what it originally was before EQ. And so so that that's something that I know that people don't check. And so you're, you end up with a kick drum that sounds smaller after EQing it to make it bigger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Great, great example. The same with a uh, distorted bass. A lot of people like will duplicate their bass or bus it and then run it through distortion. Usually any amplifier stage is going to invert the polarity, but then you're usually using EQ on top of that, especially cutting out anything that might distort the amp on like more than you want or just to shape the tone that can also flip the polarity so things get a little bit weird and you always have to check and you always have to rebalance and that's right i mean and it's the i mean it's also not just a simple flip of polarity right because yeah, the, the phase changes changes continuously at the 3db point in the, in the filter so if you have yeah. a, a low cut set to 100 hertz say it's not like the phase suddenly changes at 100 hertz. It gradually shifts mm-hmm. from wherever it started to wherever it ends up kind of above and below those frequencies. And yeah, whenever you blend all of those kind of things together, um, you can cause all kinds of problems. So yeah, definitely worth... Every time you check that filter, like if you're just comparing 100 hertz to 85 hertz for that filter, you might have to change the polarity again because of the way it blends with the other tracks. So it's it's... It can be very time-consuming and frustrating <laughs> to yeah, do it. it. There's, there's no straight way to A-B compare often these things. Yeah, it doesn't always solve the problem. It often makes another problem. And we, if we have another, if we have a lot of tracks that are high-pass filtering at the same frequency, 
we might end up with a buildup at the corner frequency. So we kind of have a boost at 100 hertz a little bit mm -hmm. in, instead of, uh, and, and it's kind of more gently rolling everything off. And we don't, we probably don't want that because we might end up with like one note that really rings out. Absolutely. I mean, one possible solution for all of this could be to use phase linear EQ. Um, you wouldn't want to do that in a recording situation. You could possibly do it in a mixing situation if you didn't mind the latency that it introduces. Mm -hmm. um, the problem with that is that, especially if you're dealing with low frequencies, then you can have pre-ringing. So you yeah, I feel like that's worse. Well, I mean, it depends, doesn't it? You yeah, know, that, it depends where the corner frequency of the EQ goes and what the frequency content of the original signal was. Um, anyway, it, yeah, it's it's not simple. So be be uh, cautious with your high pass filtering, folks. Um, and yeah, if you feel that your mixes or masters are suffering kind of from kind of muddy, cluttered low end and low mids, be cautious about anybody who tells you, oh yeah, you just want a high pass filter, or low cut filter that. Uh, it's not always as simple as it sounds. So that's not the solution. What is a solution? Okay, well, we, there, we have various solutions, right? Um, I think the the main one that I want to highlight is probably the, the one that people might find least interesting, uh, but it's fundamental, and that is the monitoring. Uh, if you can't hear something accurately, you can't fix any problems. So I, I mentioned, we both mentioned things uh, talking about the filtering there that relate to this. For example, if you have a uh, singer who's accidentally kicking the micro stand, microphone stand or tapping their foot or whatever, and you have low frequency stuff in there, if you're using speakers that don't have decent low frequency response, you probably won't notice that. So you, you wouldn't even think to use a low cut filter because you wouldn't know that you would have a problem. It's only when the mastering engineer hears it or uh, possibly when you hear it being played out on some other system that does have that low frequency content that you realize what a huge mess there is. Um, and that's that's a genuine problem. I mean, often in my career, I've been given mixes that have huge quantities of really deep sub bass, you know, kind of 20 to 30 hertz uh, sub bass that most speakers just don't reproduce. Um Either it's kind of almost like a fault, like a hum or maybe a rumble or something in the mix, or it's just not an appropriate amount. I mean, a kick drum is a great example. You can get a huge amount of subsonic content if you put a mic in the right place on, on, a, on a, a good big kick drum, which can be great or could be disastrous, depending on the kind of sound you're going and the kind of feel you're going for. So, you know, monitoring is key. You need speakers that will reproduce all the frequencies you're trying to assess, um, which I think you, it's, they've got to be going down to kind of 50 hertz or so, I would say. Not necessarily flat, providing you kind of know the sound of the speakers. You know, it's not like they, they you need completely flat frequency response, but you need some of that low frequency content there. And I mean, a classic example would be NS10s, which, you know, they're, they're everywhere in the studio world. Um, but they have almost no genuine bass below 70 hertz or so. Um, so They're pretty thin-sounding speakers. They are. They're thin, hard-sounding speakers. I mean, lots of people swear by them. They're, they're great speakers. You know, there's lots of things about the design that are quite interesting. Uh, they don't have bass ports for a start. That's one of the mm -hmm. reasons they don't have that low-frequency extension on them. But they're very punchy. 
Exactly. Um, and they can be very useful. Um, but I mean, one thing that lots of people don't realize is that most people who use NS10s a lot in mixing will have a sub that goes with them. Um, you know, a subwoofer or, or possibly two subs, one for each channel. So effectively you're kind of augmenting the capability of the, the speaker. Let's come back to subwoofers in a second. Um, okay. because I think that's an interesting topic. Let's just kind of round out the whole monitoring picture by saying, so you, you, your speakers need to be good enough. Your room needs to be good enough. It doesn't need to be perfect, but if you have major problems, acoustic problems with the room, which can be the case, you know, um, if, if lots of, we've said this before, if you're, if you're mixing in a, if your room is in a, a modern house, often the, the rooms are square and quite often they are the same height as they are square. So you effectively have a cube, which is about the worst possible shape you could ask for in terms of acoustics. Um, and that can cause pretty significant acoustic problems. So you, you can have huge hole, you know, even if the speakers are pretty flat and have decent frequency response, when you listen to them in the room, you're not going to hear those accurately because it's the, the sound of the speakers is being colored by the room and that will get in your way of you hearing what you're doing and making good decisions. And one solution to that, I think, Everybody needs a certain amount of acoustic treatment. Maybe we'll talk about that in a minute as well. Let's go back to the the whole thing about subwoofers. Do you have subs in your studio? Yeah, I use a, a Yamaha the HS series sub. It's not a high end mm -hmm. sub or anything, but uh, it it did make a big difference. And I up until the point where I got to actually use it in my own studio by borrowing it from a friend, um, and then I later bought it from him. Um, I was convinced that I didn't need or want a sub and yeah and i was completely wrong <laughs> <laughs> so and now i wouldn't want to mix with that mix or master without a sub so it's i mean can you give an idea i mean how so i mean obviously probably everybody listening knows a subwoofer is basically just another speaker that that fills out the frequency range that your main monitors may not have so ns10s roll off at around about 70 hertz um if you add a subwoofer you can you can add that low frequency content. And one of the key things about the, the subwoofer is the crossover, the, the transition between the sub itself and the main monitors. Mm -hmm. And a lot of subs, you will actually uh, plug the input signal into the sub first and then take the output from the sub to the speaker. So that crossover and all the filtering that's involved, we're back on the topic of filtering, is handled by the sub. So at least you won't have, uh, you won't be accidentally overlaying the same frequencies from the main monitor and the sub itself, right? You, yeah. you want to get as smooth as possible a transition from the sub to the main speakers. And the better subs have polarity controls, and and I think the the one from Focal has a continuously variable phase control. It's pretty okay, cool. That's interesting. Yeah. Um. So so yeah, it just fills out the the bottom end when it's loud. You can feel the the music a lot more. You can feel the punch of the, the kick drum. Mm -hmm. And I just I make sure that my sub is fairly low level where I can more or less barely hear it. I can I can feel that it's doing something to the monitors. You you miss it when it's gone, but you don't notice it as a separate speaker. When you're listening to a mono signal, it should come straight from the center of the screen you're looking at. Mm -hmm. That's how I feel do, about it. Do you know where the crossover is? For for you, because often it'll be fixed, at maybe eighty hertz, or sometimes uh, lower down, or some of them you can you can tune that that crossover 
precisely? This one is variable, and I, I'm not really sure what the frequency is at right now. I don't okay. feel like going under the desk <laughs> to check. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Uh, it's probably pretty low from what you've described. You know, yeah, if it's, you, it's pretty low. Because if, if, if the crossover is set at 80 and you switch the sub off, you're really going to hear a huge difference. Yeah. I've often seen people say that base frequencies are omnidirectional. It doesn't really matter where you put them, where you put a subwoofer. I think it absolutely matters. I could tell the difference when the sub is one foot to the right of center. So I put it dead center and yeah, works for me. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, you can cause yourselves problems by having subs dead center in theory, because if you've then, then the sub is placed symmetrically. So you could, in theory, have waves that kind of bounce off of the sidewalls and recombine and cancel out. Um, so there is an argument for having the sub slightly off-center, but I agree, I'm pretty sensitive to where it is as mm -hmm. well. I'm, it's, you're certainly less sensitive to directionality from base, but not, um, not enough that... I mean, that's why people have two subs. Well, for one thing, so that you can tell if, you, if you've accidentally panned something with a ton of base to the, the left and the right, you will notice it. Whereas if you yeah. only have a single sub, you, you're not going to hear that in the same way. I also have a base trap immediately behind it, and I have one of those decoupling pads under the sub. Yeah, I've never tried one of those, but I've only ever used a sub in a room with a, with a concrete floor um, where there's not going to be a ton of coupling going on anyway. Um, I mean, setting up subs is a whole other thing, and we should probably not get too deeply into it or no. we'll spend the entire episode talking about it. But one, so a great tr tip uh, for setting up the sub is to put the sub in the mix position. And then crawl around the walls, listening for where you hear the most bass from it. Um, and then try putting the sub there. Um, because the risk with the sub is if you have it in not quite the right position in the room, then the signal from it will cancel out with itself and you won't get the full benefit. So rather than sitting in your seat and having somebody lug the sub around the room, <laughs> which is a fairly labor-intensive way of finding a great spot for it, although it's probably the way most people do it in the end, the theory is that if you put it in the mixing position and then you crawl around the walls, because the idea is if you find the place in the room where you're hearing the most bass from it, then you can tune the level. You're getting the minimum cancellation at that yeah. position. So then you can dial down the level. I mean, do you calibrate yours by ear or do you use test tones or...? I do pink noise and uh, a meter. Kind of tweak it by ear because often it's it's just the level it seems a bit off. And, and there's different there's different kind of standards for music and for um, post production work. That's very true. I was going to say there's a whole other kind of kettle of fish with subwoofers if you're if you're just doing surround sound work or for um, something that's going for for broadcast. But let's um, neatly sidestep that for this issue yeah. and and move on. Um, okay, so we have speakers that can reproduce the full frequency range, or we have speakers plus a sub. Uh, the room, I mean, I guess realistically, most people are not in a position to to tweak their room. You know, it's when I decided to make this little home studio for myself, uh, it's a, I converted my garage. Um, there are videos for that online for anybody who's curious. We could share those links in the show notes as well. Uh, this room is not the ideal shape. Um, it's a similar width to the height, and it's about twice as long as it is wide. So it's not quite as bad as a cube, but it's almost as bad. On the other hand, it has other stuff going for it, like uh, the end wall is basically a window and just a, a drywall timber wall. Um, so that doesn't 
hold much of the bass in, which reduces the problems of the bass in my room. Even so, it needed acoustic treatment. And we did do a whole episode on acoustic treatment. So I think maybe we'll just leave it there. It's like, all I'm going to say is, if you don't have acoustic treatment in your studio, it is the most cost-effective upgrade you can possibly get for your for your studio. Uh, you know, so often you see people asking online, oh, which monitors should I get? I have these. And, you know, somebody says, well, do you have any acoustic treatment in your room? And they say no. And it's like, well, if you spend a few hundred dollars on acoustic treatment, that's going to improve the sound in your room way more than buying monitors that are two or three times the price, probably, providing you a reasonably decent standard of monitor to begin with. I absolutely um, agree with that. Yeah. And and cool. that's so, what that's what I experienced as well. Well, I mean, that's what I, I mean. I remember uh, so that I couldn't resist the day the the second coat of paint went on this room. I, you know, set my stuff up and started playing things. And I, my immediate reaction was, oh, crap, I've just wasted a ton of money because this room is unusable. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And then the following day, the acoustic treatment arrived and I put it all in and I was like, oh, thank the Lord for that. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> You know, it is usable after all. It it, yeah. it can make that big of a difference. Um, so, yeah, if you haven't heard that episode already, I think it's the title of it is You Must Do This, and there's a reason that we called it that. Okay, so one last thing on monitoring. Um, even if you have full-range speakers and you've got some acoustic treatment and, or, you know, you, if you're using a sub, you have it set up, um, it can still be tricky to know whether what you're hearing is 100% reliable. So one other thing that can be helpful is to get a good quality pair of headphones and use that for comparison. And funnily enough, that's another question that came up in the Q&A on the Home Mastering Masterclass this week was, what does it mean when people say, oh, I'm going to check the low end on cans? The answer to that basically is you take the room out of the equation. You know, the reason your speakers can fool you if you have them in a room is because you're listening to the speakers plus the acoustics of the room. With headphones, the speakers are on your ears. So there are no acoustics to, I mean, there's the acoustics of the actual headphones themselves, but providing they're reasonably even. They don't have to be flat. Again, it's another, um, somebody made the comment that the HD650s, the Sennheisers, that I suggest as a kind of affordable pair of headphones to, to try, don't give you completely flat frequency response. I don't think that's that important. It's you need to know what the frequency response is and you you need a response that doesn't kind of have huge boosts. I mean, some headphones just have massive variations in level over the frequency range. They're just going to confuse you. You need a pair of headphones that's good enough that what you're hearing is more reliable or at least as reliable as what's in your room. Um, but they don't have to be perfect. And then it's just a question of comparing the two. I don't often have to check bass on headphones but if i do then it's basically a question of okay well that sounds good to me in the monitors let's put the headphones on huh that sounds a bit strange take the headphones back off my experience is usually if there's something not quite right if you hear it in the monitors and the headphones then you need to deal with it and if it's just one or the other then it's probably not an issue um is that something you do do you use headphones to check bass or is it you do just use them for kind of clicks and distortion that kind of stuff yeah the the headphones i use are are more sensitive to like little details but when you put the headphones on you should hear it should be the same relative balance to what you're hearing in the monitors with the bass but with a little more detail like maybe like the note attack is a little more crisp things like that but i just not in the habit of doing uh the low end checks with uh the headphones i'm usually listening to like heads and tails of songs that's where i check the most yeah 
which is probably because you have a sub and some acoustic treatment. <laughs> so, exactly. You know, the, the, the room is working for you. Um, but yeah, having some headphones or even an alternative set of monitors, you know, some, sometimes uh, just like if you're in the habit of listening to your music in the car or on um, maybe even earbuds, if they're decent quality, or, you know, if you have a hi-fi set up somewhere else in the, the house or boombox or whatever it is, getting another perspective can be helpful. Um we talk about all kinds of strategies like that way back in the beginning of the podcast, episode two or three, uh, the three M's of mastering. One of the M's is monitoring, um, and there are some suggestions in there. So if you're interested in that topic, you can dig a bit deeper there. And of course, as we're listening on different monitors and headphones and things like that, we're supposed to be checking on reference tracks as well. Whatever tracks that the, the artist sent us to, to compare to or our favorite mixes that are sound balanced and all that kind of stuff. We should have uh, some low-end references, so stuff where the bass just really sounds awesome, and it sounds awesome everywhere you go, every set of headphones and speakers, and then compare your tracks to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and actually that kind of answers one of the, the big questions that people have. It's, you know, the title of the episode is Fear of Bass, and the question is, when do we ha- kind of have to stop feeling pleased by the amount of bass that we're hearing and start being nervous about it? Um, mm-hmm. And I think the answer to that is when it's more than you're hearing in your favorite reference tracks. Yeah. And and I think that's something that I asked you in the Home Mastering Masterclass. Like, what what do you do if the, the bass in your mix sounds better than the reference tracks? And you told me that it can't because the reference tracks sound great for a reason and that they translate well, then... You can't you can't beat the reference track because you're just probably ruining your mix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's I mean that's the idea of the reference track, right? If the reference track is the goal, and you then compare your song with it, and you have more bass than the reference track, that's too much bass by definition because the thing that you said you want to sound like is the reference track. So it might be kind of superficially pleasing. I mean, because the risk is, you said it that it won't translate. It's like, it could sound awesome in your room. Or one type of headphones or, or yeah. Yeah, I was going to say Beats headphones, right? Beats headphones have a big uh, boost in the low end because people like that. Uh, people who like Beats headphones like that. That will work if you have a balanced frequency response going in because it will just sound the way people like to hear it on those headphones. But if you have a track where actually there's a bit too much bass, that could sound like overwhelmingly too much bass on the Beats headphones or in a, you know, a car where you've got massive woofers in the, in the, in the boot, you know, the, the, those cars where the kind of the bass comes in and the whole thing starts sort of vibrating gently on the suspension. It's, um, you know, that's just, it's going to be too much at that point. And the same thing applies to other frequency ranges as well. If the song you're working on sounds like, oh, the, the high end is so much clearer and brighter than my reference track, chances are there's going to be a system out there where it just sounds really harsh and brittle. Mm-hmm. Reference tracks are a great way to calibrate your ears. You know, the, the the chances of getting a perfect monitoring system in a home mastering environment are pretty limited. I mean, you could argue there's no such thing as a perfect monitoring system, but almost any monitoring situation will have strengths and weaknesses. And the way that you figure out what you have and how to compensate for them is to use reference material to figure out what you're what you want to be hearing um and then yeah balance stuff against it you can you can cope with almost any problem if you use reference tracks carefully and of course as always my favorite uh, 
caveat about reference tracks, you need to loudness match them first. So, yeah. uh, you know, it needs to be in a similar genre. It needs to be a reasonably similar style so that you're not comparing chalk with cheese. And then you want to measure the loudness of your reference track and turn it down till it's around about the reference level that you want a, your final master to be at. Otherwise, it's just going to sound better because it was a bit louder. Or yours might sound better because it was a bit louder. So you, the loudness needs to be matched before you make those comparisons. Um, I think, and the other kind of top tip to mention, I'm sure we've said this before, is just to remember to listen to a ton of music in your studio. It's so tempting to kind of set up the the kind of the audio layer where you, you know, you go to work on your amazing music before it's released into the world. And if you've never actually listened to any of the other music you like in there, you have no idea how what you're hearing in that space relates to the rest of the world. So it's not like you have to sit there and do critical listening, but, you know, basically I listen to music pretty much all the time that I'm not actually working on music, uh, doing emails, writing blog posts, making invoices, soldering cables, whatever it is, have some music on. It doesn't have to be loud. doesn't have to be, you don't have to be paying any particular attention to it. And over time you will subconsciously learn how that music that you think sounds great everywhere else sounds in your room. And that will help you get better results with what you're working on. So we've identified that there is a problem with our master or mix and we can hear it through our monitoring, our room treatment, our reference tracks. How do we actually fix it? Right. And funnily enough, the answer to this is usually really simple. And the answer is EQ. Um, you know, I, again, you, you hear people asking, oh, my mixes sound harsh. Um, should I be using this tape, tape emulation or this saturator or this stereo processing plugin, whatever it is, you know, this parallel te compression technique, whatever it is. And most of the time, my, especially when I get to hear the examples is no, you just need to EQ it. You know, it sounds harsh because it's got too much in the upper mids or it sounds dull. And that's because it doesn't have proportionally speaking enough high frequency content. I mean, it's funny, actually, I've just been thinking it recently, just for some reason, some of the albums that I've been working on, none of them have needed anything out of the ordinary in terms of processing. I've just had to be really careful about the EQ. And it's just insane how sensitive a mix can be to the EQ. I mean, I've, I've said it before, you know, tiny little adjustments here and there can make all the world of difference. You know, you might have a, a low shelf in there to lift out the low end because it was sounding a bit harsh and a bit bright beforehand. Maybe tuning where exactly that slope kind of crosses over up or down by 50 hertz might completely transform things because if it's a bit high then it lifts out the low end of the guitars and makes things worse and if it's a bit low it doesn't bring out the low end in those guitars enough and everything sounds a little bit hollow and a little bit thin and you get it just in the right place and it just works and it's kind of that simple and you can't get the eq right until you've got the monitoring and the acoustic treatment and you've got the right reference tracks to compare with all of these things working but once you have got those things eq often is the answer Another question that came up in the Masterclass Q&A this week was what to do if you have a track where the kick drum is really booming out. And I talked about a whole load of different strategies that you might be able to use to solve that. Um, but the first one is, well, maybe actually it does need a minus 4 dB notch EQ at whatever, 70 hertz or something, you know, to tame it. And actually maybe 
that will suit the rest of the track. It's kind of, you might feel nervous about making quite a dramatic change like that because you think it might mess up everything else. But if somebody has supplied a mix that has that problem in the kick drum, it's quite possible they're hearing the same problem in everything else because it could be to do with their monitoring or their room or whatever. So I think EQ would always be the first port of call. It makes me laugh because people talk so much about analog warmth. Um, and sometimes it's to do with tape saturation and you know, harmonic distortion and this, that, and the other, but often it's just to do with the EQ balance. It's about having enough of the low mids and enough deep bass in there to balance the high frequencies, you know, and as much as a dB either way can kind of make all the difference. Is that something you've found yourself? With the analog modeled stuff? Well, just with just with EQ in general, just with mixes kind of being sensitive to, to very small changes. Yeah, I think when we're, when we're EQing on the master... Um small changes make a bigger difference than if you were EQing like just the vocal things like that I don't know what else to say about it (laughs) it feels it feels obvious but yeah like a a light touch sometimes is all you need but sometimes there's a big problem that's across like the entire project and and you need to be more surgical and you need to be more careful and definitely check with your reference tracks make sure it's just give yourself a sanity check and sometimes you need huge changes uh, even within a project, you know. It doesn't necessarily have to be a, a massive change for the whole project. It might just be one song where actually it needs, I don't know, four or five dBs extra bass in the low end. And you need to be careful, you know. I mean, if you push in a huge low uh, frequency shelf to to bring up the bass and suddenly all kinds of problems start leaping out, yeah, then maybe that wasn't the, the best solution. So, but if you do that... Sometimes I kind of have people kind of say to me, is it okay to do this, whatever this is? And I kind of say, yeah, well, if it, if it works, if it makes it sound better and it's not causing any kind of other problems, then yeah, absolutely. It's, that's completely fine. I mean, we were talking about subwoofers earlier on and you were uh, laughing about the fact that every so often you accidentally, you know, will knock the cable out. Um, And because your sub is not doing a huge amount to augment what the rest of the monitoring is doing, you might not notice for a couple of hours and then kind of think, Oh, that's why everything sounds wrong to me. Um, that can happen to people. Maybe, you know, on the third day of mixing, the rabbit chewed through the cable to the subwoofer or whatever. And uh, they, and so they mixed the whole song and it just had too much bass because they weren't hearing as much as they expected. You never know. It's Yeah, a lot of people have good speakers, but they'll put them in the wrong spot or they they won't have them on stands. They'll have them on a table rattling everything. Or you get that comb filtering from a speaker being close to a, a hard object. Mm-hmm. Um, or they've got not really a, a low frequency problem, but like they might have a leatherback chair that reflects highs r- straight back into their ears. And then they're, they're mixing everything too dull because of that. So all kinds of things. Yeah. And I mean, that's absolutely. And that kind of, again, maybe this is too simple, but I think it's worth saying the title of the episode is fear of bass but people want, everybody wants, you know, that big, fat, satisfying, solid bass. Um, but it's all about balance. Um, you, yeah, if you, if you mix something, if for some reason you're hearing too much in the highs, you will mix with too much bass. If you're not hearing enough of the highs, then you might not add enough bass. It's all, it all comes back to getting the monitoring as, as good as you can. Um, and c- comparing carefully with the reference track. So we'll probably end up like a broken record at the end of this. But, um, so EQ is is fundamental and should be the first port of call. 
I mean, one common problem that I find if you EQ a master, especially, uh, let's say, you know, you, you feel like you want more low end in the bass guitar. So you bring in a low shelf and you add two or three dBs from 100 hertz down or something, and it works really nicely with the guitar, but then suddenly the kick drum is thumping too much. So maybe you identify the frequency that that's happening at and you go in with a notch to try and tame the kick drum at that frequency, but then the bass doesn't sound even anymore. It's like there wasn't quite enough bass overall, so you brought it up, but then that that dip that you put in to improve the kick drum sound means that one of the notes in the, the bass line just isn't quite speaking the way that you would like. One possible solution to that is compression, where you use the compression to control those little discrepancies in level, either maybe hold the kick drum back or bring the bass guitar forward. And you can do that on a whole mix. I mean, I guess in an ideal world, you would go back to the mix, but we're going to have, you know, this is mastering. Probably you have a deadline that means you can't do it, or you have a client who is just has been slaving over this thing for months and is sick to the back teeth of it and can't bear the thought of opening the mix session up again. Um, and so you have to do the best that you can with it. Compression can help. The problem with that is, uh, let's say, so the example I just gave where you've brought up the bass in general and the kick drum is pushing out a bit too much. If the compressor cuts in on that kick drum, it can cause pumping in the higher frequencies. So you're hearing the, the mix flinch when the kick drum comes in. So you control the level of the kick, but you hear problems elsewhere in the mix. The solution to that is multiband compression, possibly. Multiband compression is a whole other rabbit hole that we uh, can't go into too much detail in here, but the basic idea is you split the compressor into different bands that work independently. So you could have more compression in the bass end than in the mids and the highs. Uh, you could control those low frequencies and not cause pumping elsewhere in the frequency spectrum. Um, anybody who's interested in this, it's a topic that I go into in a lot more detail in the Home Mastering Compression videos and ebook uh, that I released recently. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. But in a nutshell, my strategy when I'm using multiband compression is not to do anything dramatically different than using any other kind of compression, but it just the fact that it works in individual bands, by which we mean, for example, up to, say, 200 hertz, and then independently from 200 hertz up, it can just be more transparent. You can have a little bit more compression than you might otherwise be able to get away with and therefore control some of those frequencies. And that means that, for example, for me, in the context of getting great bass sound, I often like to push the EQ quite a lot harder into a multiband compressor than I would be able to do if it was a single band compressor or if I wasn't using any compression. The low band helps even out that bass response uh, without affecting anything else in the mix. And that can be a really useful uh, technique for, for getting the kind of end result that people are looking for. Um, and I'm guessing you do that, do you, John? The way that you're describing that, I think maybe not, but... Interesting. Hmm. Say more. I, I, I need to revisit your videos on multiband compression because I think I do that a little bit different, but um, but I understand what you mean. Well, I mean, the, another way of thinking about it is that you could reduce the threshold in the low frequency band so that you get more compression in the low band and then uh, possibly increase the makeup gain in the low band to even it back out. and You'll end up with more controlled low end, for example. Yeah, I think um, I'm more likely to to do that to adjust the threshold than 
to um to to do like a large like a shelf boost or something like that in the low end. At the end of the day, the two kind of end up being similar. The thing that I like about doing it with EQ is you have more control. So yeah. another nice little strategy um, in terms of EQ, it, which goes back to the the kind of the, the analog days with the the kind of Pultec style EQs, where you can boost and cut at the same frequency, but they don't cancel each other out. So you yeah. end up with this. If you imagine the frequency response, you might see something that is higher generally in the low bass, then it dips down lower than it started, and then kind of evens back out that kind of frequency response could work really well in the kind of situation that I was talking about, where you want to bring up the low end in general, but you want to control a particular frequency area in the kick drum. I like to do that using a digital EQ because it gives you even more control. You can absolutely focus in on the frequency ranges that you want. That kind of control going into a multiband compressor, I find, can be uh, really powerful. So... Um, do you feel that a dynamic EQ gives you the same kind of control, like two and one? Well, it's it's interesting because, I mean, dynamic EQ and multiband compression are kind of almost like two different sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. I mean, multiband compression gives you quite broad control of the independent frequency bands. The way that I use it, I typically only use three bands. Whereas mm-hmm. with dynamic EQ, if there was one note in a bass line, say, that was sticking out, I might hone in on that frequency with the dynamic EQ and obviously set it so that it, the, the gain reduction is only triggered when the level goes beyond a certain point. So that's kind of like multiband compression. It's just in a yeah. really specific frequency range. So it's almost kind of the exact opposite of what I just described. Rather than tuning the EQ to go into a broad compressor, you tune the compressor to only affect a very narrow frequency range. Yeah. And I, I guess the, the benefit is different filter curves. So you can have a shelf dynamic EQ, or you can have a, um, a bell curve, even a notch. Whereas multiband compression, it's just bandpass filters. Yeah. it's. I mean, it's interesting because often people say to me that they only use multiband compression to fix problems. Whereas I quite often use it just to kind of get a sound. Whereas if I wanted to fix a problem, I might reach for a dynamic EQ. It's like all of these things. There, there are lots of different ways of approaching the same problem. And it, it kind of, it comes down to, you know, whatever you were taught or the, the the strategy that you came up with first um, or the material that you're using. Um, so they're, they're all kind of different ways to crack the same nut, I guess. Um, yeah. A bit like, I don't know, using different crossfade shapes in a, in a digital editor or do you learn one compressor really well or do you have a range of 10 compressors and pick the perfect compressor for the song you happen to be working on? It's like neither one of those approaches is right or wrong. Uh, they're just different different ways of working and different things will feel more or less intuitive to different people. Actually, that's something that we go into in some detail in the the home mastering compression course. Um, So again, people might want to check that out. Another type of compression that uh, you might want to use for this kind of situation, although it's it's not really a mastering technique, it's more of a mixing technique, is side chaining. Um, And you were telling me, John, that you'd uh, seen somebody using the uh, FabFilter Pro C, is that right? Yeah, the, the the new FabFilter compressor, Pro C2, I think it is, it has this way of being incredibly fast with the attack and release that's not really possible in any other compressor while also being perfectly clean. So usually if you have your release set really fast, it's going to just distort when there's any amount of gain reduction happening. 
And with this one, it's totally clean and you can have almost infinite gain reduction and there's no harmonics being added. I don't know what they're doing, but it works really well. You do need to rely on the look ahead for that, but, um, and this would be like a mix thing. So you would put your Pro C2 on, let's say your synth beds and you have your kick drum or a ghost trigger track or something like that. Something that will create a a thump into the compressor's sidechain input that will turn down your synths every time the, that happens. Every time the kick drum happens, every time the snare drum happens, whatever you need. It'll turn down the synth bed by a very specific amount and come back just when you need it. You can have it set up so that if the kick is, the the body of the kick is is... 50 milliseconds, you can have that synth come back up right at the end of that um, really smoothly and without distortion. And uh, I wish I had some other like free alternative things for that, but it seems like that one compressor is the only one that, that can do that that cleanly. Now that's interesting. I'm going to, I can't, I think I have the Pro C. I don't know whether I have the Pro C2 yet. Um, so I'm going to have to check that out. Um, I mean, it's definitely a mix technique. Uh, I think you explained it pretty well. The, I always think of it as just like an extreme or a, a musical version of, you know, when you listen to a DJ on the radio, um, which is this thing, kids, where you used to... No, it's fine. <laughs> um, and, you know, so the DJ wants to speak over the... You know, the, the music is still going and they want to talk over the top of it rather than them sit there with a the fader pulling the signal back all the time. Uh, they have a sidechain compressor set up so that whenever their voice comes in, it pulls back the music. So... Their voice is not compressed in the same way, but the music is pulled back and gets out of the way of what they're saying. And you can do exactly the same thing in the the low end in a mix. And that can be another great way of uh, kind of addressing that problem of low end clutter. Um, you know, if you want yeah. a huge kick drum sound and you want a huge bass drum sound, very often if you add those two things together, they will just fight against each other or build up and distort or uh, kind of just make this kind of big mess. Whereas if, yeah, if you sidechain the bass off of the kick, you can automate the bass to get out of the kick's way, basically, but do it in a way that our ears don't notice it happening. Yeah. Um, I've, I think I've said this before, but allegedly uh, Skrillex sidechained everything by hand, so literally automated all of the, the gain changes rather than using a compressor to achieve that effect, which is how he achieved some of his signature sound. I don't know whether that's true or not, but it's, it's, it's a fun story. Something else that we've mentioned a few times, but kind of in a negative way, but that can be helpful in a mix situation for getting a great sounding low end is distortion, which might surprise a few people because I talk so much about avoiding distortion. Uh, but you mentioned it uh, way back in our, when we were talking about filters, actually. Uh, the, suge the idea is, is parallel distortion. So you basically have your clean bass sound and then you route that out to another track where you apply some probably pretty heavy distortion uh, to the signal, but then you just blend in a tiny little bit of that into the original bass signal. And the theory, as far as I understand it, is basically that the distortion typically creates extra harmonics in the sound. Quite often, if you have a deep, smooth bass sound, it'll sound great if you've got speakers that have enough frequency content to reproduce it well. But if you have small speakers where you're losing out on all of that kind of sub-goodness, the bass can end up actually sounding a little bit low in the mix in comparison to everything else. If you bring in some of those extra higher harmonics, our ear is very good at guessing what the 
frequency of the bass that would have caused that distortion is, and it almost kind of fills it in in our minds. Um, it's one of the reasons you think you hear more bass than you probably do coming out of a smartphone speaker or back in the day, a, a transistor radio, you know, a tiny little speaker. But we imagine we hear more bass than we do because our ear is picking out the harmonics and kind of reconstructing the signal in our head. So by adding some of those harmonics in, just very small amount, we can make it sound as though there's more bass than there really is in the mix. And you can let the bass cut through in the mix without having to actually boost the level of it, which could unbalance things and cause us more problems. Is that an effect you've used, John? Yeah, like uh, Ozone's Exciter module. I'll use that. That's multiband, so I'll just do it on the low end. And so I'm just adding in just a, a little bit of that. Often it's like 1%. Yeah, it's amazing how, how little you can get away with. Yeah, a small amount makes a big difference with that. No, I agree. It's, that always amazes me, how little of it you need to make quite a big apparent difference. It's one of those slightly mysterious things about the way our brains work, I think, in terms of decoding sound. So, wow, okay, that was a that was a pretty hefty list in the end. <laughs> um, I think we covered everything that we, we planned to. Was there anything else you wanted to mention before we sign off? Uh, no, I, I think that's it. Um, yeah, just the general strategy. Maybe we can sum this up in one minute. Yeah. Yeah, we haven't had a mastering maxim for weeks. So let's try and sum it up. Uh, you can't fix a problem you can't hear. So you need speakers that actually reproduce the bass accurately enough that you can make good decisions. You need those speakers to be placed in the room and acoustic treatment in the room that allows you to hear those speakers well enough to hear what they're telling you. And you need to know really well what your favorite reference tracks should sound like on that system in order to get the results that you're looking for. If you've got those things in place, probably it's mostly down to EQ after that, just getting the right balance of the bass, the mids and the highs. But you might want to use techniques like multiband compression or in the mix side chaining and parallel distortion or dynamic EQ to really grab control of those elements. How did I do? Well done. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing we have this written down. It makes it that a lot easier. Yes, I was cheating there. <laughs> but that's okay. We're allowed to cheat. Um, and I don't know whether that, I don't think that can be a maxim because that was a list. But anyway, yeah. I mean, the mastering maxim would be get the, get the monitoring right. The, the better you can get your monitoring situation, the easier all of this is going to become because you hear the problem, you fix it one way or another. Um, if your monitors or your room or whatever it is is lying to you, you're pretty much doomed in terms of trying to get uh, bass. And you probably should be afraid of the bass because you basically have no idea what you're going to be unleashing on the world until you do. <laughs> so there we go. Uh, well, thanks, John. That was fun. I enjoyed that. <laughs> it's always a good time chatting with you about mastering, getting super geeky, getting off topic and then cutting all that stuff out. <laughs> yeah, I wonder how much of this will actually have made it through to the edit. Um, well, uh, thank you in advance for doing that editing and for mixing the episodes as always. I noticed we had a compliment on YouTube recently from somebody saying the reason they trust what we say on this show is because the podcast sounds so good, which is, that's a pretty good compliment, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, thanks to Kaylee Law for letting us use his music as always. 
If you would like to see some of the links we mentioned in the show, please head over to themasteringshow.com where you'll find more information on these topics and particularly some links back to earlier episodes where we talked about some of these subjects in more depth. Please also leave us a rating and review if you liked the show or think other people would enjoy hearing it. Just go to themasteringshow.com forward slash review. And thanks for listening. <laughs>